Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Today, we're embarking on a new program. As many of you know, I published a book called Psychedelic Medicine, which was a group of interviews with the most prominent scientists in the United States on their research into psychedelic medicine. The second book in that series is called Psychedelic Wisdom, in Psychedelic Wisdom, I interviewed prominent scientists, doctors, psychologists, and other professional people in their 70s and 80s who revealed to the world courageously their decades of sub rosa use of psychedelic medicine for their own personal growth, enhancement, and creativity. Now we're embarking on a new program, and it's called Confessions of psychedelic families, or at least that's the working title. What I'm going to be doing is interviewing prominent families in the United States who have been doing psychedelic medicines together as a family to bring themselves closer to one another, to create more family intimacy, creativity, and mind expansion as a family. Today, with me here in the studio, or should I say here on Zoom studio, is my beautiful daughter, Evacheska DeAngelis. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Evacheska. Thank you, Dad. I am so, so honored and excited to be here with you today. So in recent years, Evacheska, you have changed your career midstream. Tell us a little bit about the career change before we get into the specifics of our psychedelic journeys together. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. At 30 years old, I found myself transplanted from California to Manhattan, sitting in a very luxurious office in a downtown Manhattan high-rise with a, a really fantastic job, a team of uh, you know over 100 people, five different departments, Felt that I was very happy and very rewarded, and yet at the same time, really unfulfilled. Um, loved helping other people. Really had convinced myself that that's what I was doing in that career, but it just really wasn't enough. And I began to wonder, was anything ever going to be enough? Was anything ever going to feel correct? And uh, after some deep searching, going inside, as we like to say, term I learned from you, uh, and, uh, you know, really reflecting, I realized that it was not that career path that was going to make me happy. I had the prestige of the executive title at a $750 million company. And yet on the inside, I was, um, what I like to almost call spiritually closeted. I wasn't talking about my meditation practice. I wasn't talking about my inclination towards psychonautics, um, or a lot of the books that I was reading or the various other practices. And I knew in order to be my whole self, uh, I needed to make a change. And so I did. <laughs> and what did you change from, from that high level corporate six figure position that you had? Well, the first move was going back to school to follow in my parents' footsteps and study psychology, um, which I am in the midst of currently. Um, and the second was also to begin to uh, pursue alternative 
methods of education. So I've become certified as a mindfulness and meditation facilitator, um, an integrative coach and counselor, and I'm studying various other aspects of education to supplement my traditional academia. Um, so I can really help people with consciousness expansion and what I really like to call the journey back to self, um, supporting peeling back layers, understanding ourselves more deeply, whether it be through meditation or music or breath work or more traditional methodologies as well. And let's now talk about your involvement with the family and with yourself with psychedelic medicines, because that's really what this interview is about. So can you remember uh, when in your life you first became aware of the fact that your parents uh, used psychedelic medicines? I, you know, I, I can't remember there really being a time that I wasn't adjacently aware of it. I, I was recently actually just talking to a friend about this because I spent a month in Peru studying with the ayahuasca foundation and learning about plant medicine. And I don't remember there being a time in my life where I didn't know what ayahuasca was. Um, so I've really been trying to reflect upon when the first time I learned about it, but it was an open-er conversation. I think the degree to which I was aware of your engagement with psychedelics probably came more in my 20s, but there was an awareness nonetheless. Yes, and of course, you grew up in an atmosphere where we had uh, fundraisers for Normal, the National Organization to Reform Marijuana Law. And we had some very important fundraisers for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Yes, I recall uh, those as a teenager, certainly. And then there were the famous Friday night meetings at our home as you were growing up. Yes. What do, what do you recall about those meetings, if anything? Yeah. I mean, I remember, well, first of all, one of the things that I always really appreciated about those meetings is that even though I was a tiny human, um, no one ever treated me like I wasn't supposed to be there or as if I, um, didn't have something to add to the conversation. <laughs> and so I remember having really interesting, um, engaging conversations starting from a very, very young age. And again, I think I was picking up a lot through osmosis. So while no one was directly talking to a five-year-old about psychedelics at the time, um, <laughs> there certainly was a lot of conversation about mind expansion and consciousness um, that was happening that I was not only just absorbing and taking in, but also participating in. And, you know, for a child, consciousness expansion and imagination are kind of one and the same, right? So it was just a very easy way to participate. Well, what people listening to this uh, are not aware of, but I'm aware of and I'll share right now, is that you were quite conversational when you were five years old. You were extremely precocious and had an enormous vocabulary and really could hold your own with, uh, with adults uh, at age five. And fortunately, the kind of adults that your mother and I associated with uh, were able to get beyond what might be called ageism, and simply talk to you as another being once they caught on to the fact that you were conversational. So you have this, this knowledge of your folks being involved in something different. And you have this, you know, this, this what's referred to as the famous uh, Friday night uh, uh, meeting. 
um, where scientists of, from, from various fields congregated at our home and talked about psychedelics uh, quite openly. These were the, the leaders in the field. What about friendships? Were you able to talk to your friends about these things or did your friends, and I'm not talking about when you were five now, I'm talking about more when you were 10 and eight and nine, 10, 11, and so on. I, I well, I definitely remember um, the marijuana fundraising event. And I think I, I was around the age of 14, the one that I'm recalling really specifically. And I certainly remember talking to my friends about that event. And um, it was, I actually think that I had some friends over during the event. And so there was no way to let them know that, like, I think. I think either like I was coming to pick something up and everybody was there and I had a couple friends with me, but there was no way to say, Oh no, this isn't happening. And so it was kind of a, a way to ease into the conversation with my friends, but it was really interesting to, um, gauge the, you know, varied levels of both interest, but also of course, fear because of what like our general pop culture programming has done, um, to making people afraid or creating fear around these, these medicines rather than creating awareness around them and treating them as medicines rather than as drugs. Do you remember meeting Ram Dass at our house when you were a, a little? I do. Yes. Yeah. That's a story that most of my friends, the jaw kind of hits the floor when I tell that story. <laughs> that, that, that he dropped in as yeah. part of the event. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure at the time he was just another person at the house for you. Absolutely. And do you recall when your first psychedelic experience or your first experience with marijuana was? My first experience with marijuana uh, was, uh, in, in the thick of a pretty significant portion of my brain development years. Um, I think I was 12 and it was certainly not procured through family. Um, and it was definitely more of a, you know, preteen testing situation with friends. Marijuana has never really been my medicine. Um, so I didn't engage with it very much. Um, but when I did engage with it, it was really, more as a teenager. And then by the time I was in college and when I was like 20, it was, I was fairly done with it. Um, with psychedelics, you know, I have a very interesting, um, interesting relationship with psychedelics because whereas a lot of people I know used psychedelics experimentally as party drugs, I only ever knew them as medicines. I, I never engaged with MDMA in a rave setting um, I never just like decided to trip on LSD, you know, randomly as a teenager for fun. And so the first time that I engaged with psychedelics was in my mid twenties. And I had at that point already learned about the importance of set and setting and setting an intention and integration, um, which really set the stage for so much of my own personal practice, which has been so seminal, frankly, in my own growth. Um, my own deep work, and then also, you know, really helping not just my friends, but also people that I work with as well. Well, it's very comforting and heartwarming to hear you say these words, <laughs> because it means that your mother and I really got our message across, which is that these are sacramental medicines of the highest caliber. Yeah. And as you well know, your mother and I did not use them recreationally. We also did not go to raves. We did not take psychedelic medicine in, in, uh, in social situations. 
you know, not that we look askance or that we're criticizing those who do, you know, to each their own taste. But for our particular taste, uh, these are medicines. They're not drugs. It is an interesting aspect of these substances. And there are other substances as well, like this, which can be used both as, quote, drugs and as medicines. And basically, it's the same substance. But right. what what makes the difference, of course, is the mindset, the set and the setting and of the protocol, the frequency and the dosage. There are a lot of factors that come into play. Yeah. And I've noticed that, you know, as I've moved into my 30s and really developed a relationship with these medicines and have experimented with using them more socially, that my inclination is to use them as medicines because that's the relationship that I developed with them from the beginning. And I do see it truly as a relationship. I, I think that the more that you engage with these medicines, it is like, you know, engaging with a friend for the first time. In the beginning, it's a little bit, um, you know, new, it feels good, but you're not totally sure where you're going necessarily. But as you continue to engage, you build a relationship with the medicines and you really understand how to engage and how you two play off each other and what you can learn from each other, just like you would with a, a dear friend or a person in your life. As you were aware, as you were growing up, that uh, that your parents held uh, myself and your mom, uh, I should say, uh, uh, held these special psychedelic medicines in very high regard. What was your take on your folks' attitude towards prescription medicine in general? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, it's such a good question. And, um, you know, I have been reflecting upon this a lot because I, as part of my personal deep work with psychedelic medicine, one of the things that I have really transmuted is um, a level of judgment you know, about certain things that I judge and hold judgment for. And, and I think that prescription medicines have a place in the world to an extent, of course, you know, antibiotics are very helpful for people. There are certain aspects of synthetic and chemical medicines that of course save lives and support people. And also it's hard to ignore the fact that we are in the middle of an opioid crisis and that those are prescriptions and that they're being written, you know, to people who likely don't necessarily need them or they're being overprescribed. Um, and, you know, I think as part of the education that I received from my parents, both again, through osmosis and conversation is that they're to be heeded and to be paid attention to, and to be taken with very, very distinct care. Um, I actually am at a point now in my life. And again, this is there's no judgment about people who do engage with, you know, these over-the-counter medicines or anything, but like, I haven't taken Advil in a year and a half. Um, I don't even like to put that in my body anymore. And um, I'm grateful that I don't need to, um, and that I've found like alternative ways to address discomfort and inflammation and pain, um, predominantly through plants um, and, and non-entheogenic and non-psychedelic plant medicines as well. But, um, you know, it really, really, as I've come home to myself and started to review this information more that I learned growing up, I'm more and more aware of it. So I don't know that I'm answering your question like directly of what your perspective was on it, but from my perspective, the perspective that I learned about just the holistic education of the difference between, you know, entheogenic medicine, psychedelic medicine, prescription medicine, over-the-counter drugs um, has really helped shape my view of how I approach these things. You recently spent a month 
in Peru studying plant medicine. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that experience, please. Yeah, it was a beautiful month. Um, Deep in the Amazon jungle, um, I did a program with the Ayahuasca Foundation, and um, the Ayahuasca Foundation partners with um, the Shipibo lineage, um, which are an indigenous people from um, the Amazon in Peru. And um, well, ayahuasca is, of course, a big piece of the program, um, plant medicine uh, in general is um, it's a part of this lineage's life. And um I would say that I, you know, I learned so much about the fact that we just as humans, it seems as though these indigenous people and ancient tribes really, really understood about how to relate with plants and how to leverage plants to honor and treat our human bodies. And as technology has advanced, you know, it would seem that the human species has leaned into so much technology that we've lost our way a little bit with these, with our connection to these plants. And, you know, what I can say from personal experience is, um, I, I was diagnosed with, um, hypothyroidism at 15. I'm 35 years old now. So I've been on, um, Synthroid medication for my hypothyroid for 20 years. And when I got to Peru, I told the curandero, who is the plant doctor, the, the Shipibo man who works with the plants, that I would really not like to be taking a medication every day for the rest of my life. Like I'm done and I, I don't want to do it. And so he used his knowledge um, from what he's learned through the plants, through his family for generations and generations and generations and gave me non-psychedelic, non-entheogenic plant medicine that I drank that he had made from the plants surrounding our, where we were staying for the month. Um, and I drank it three times a day and it's been six weeks now and I have been off Synthroid. I feel great. And so my deepest learning is that there's so much more to be learned <laughs> from these plants. Did he give you some of that material to take home to, to, to drink? He didn't. He said that it was a three week protocol and that I would be done at the end. Well, I very much look forward to your next thyroid panel. Yes, to, it's, I'm, I'm getting it in two weeks, so I will share the update. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. That's very important. This is, uh, it's quite a story because you. if your panel comes out normal after that, we've got to find out a lot more about what it was that he gave you. I agree. We've, I think I've only just scratched the surface here. I think there's a lot of information to be held. And, um, you know, I think at this point, you know, six weeks later, I think I would know if, uh, if my levels were weird, I would be feeling it hormonally. I would be tired. Other things would be happening, but yes, I am getting blood work done in a couple of weeks. So. Yes. You might be feeling it. You might not. You're such a high energy person to begin with that you could lose a little energy and maybe not, but I don't want to offend your sensitivity to yourself. So we'll find out when we get the tests. Yes. You know, talking about eating things as you were growing up, um, did you seem to be, were you taught a particular approach to nutrition? Yeah. I mean, I think all of this stuff ties together of course. And, you know, we were a very health conscious household. It was, um, not just about, um, you know, food consumption, but also activity and, um, you know, what was happening there. And, you know, I, I struggled personally, I struggled with it, you know, for my own reasons. And it wasn't until, um, you know, my late twenties and early thirties, and especially in the past five years, really that like, 
I've truly come to synthesize, understand, and embody, you know, the practices that were just a normal part of our household. I, I seem to remember you taking a certain amount of teasing from your friends when we'd have friends over and parties because they referred to our house as the granola house. Yeah, definitely the granola house. And my apartment here in New York now is also the granola house now. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, they, yeah. they still use that terminology? I'm not sure that they do, but I feel like it's just, it's the same thing. <laughs> uh, uh, and pr presently, uh, are you a vegetarian? Um, I, I eat fish maybe once a month at most. Um, I do eat eggs and the rest of my diet is plant-based. Have you seen the movie eating to extinction? I have not. You recommended it. It's on my list. And have you seen the movie sea spiracy also on my list? I haven't turned the television on since I got back from Peru. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, uh, understood screen time, but they're on my list. Well, as you know, we have been plant slant over 90% for decades. Yes. But after watching those two movies, uh, we have gone completely vegan uh, b for political reasons. So I look forward to discussing with you, uh, you know, your, your reaction uh, after you see those two movies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my general philosophy with this stuff is like, it's, I do feel as though every single person should take the time. And I do think that psychedelic medicine really helps with this to explore listening to their body. I mean, we know through, you know, my studies through your work, through other experts in the space that like the body does not lie. And really, if you want to find out something, you can really ask your body. And there are people who benefit from, you know, a certain amount of animal protein. And yet I think there are very specific ways with which to engage with said protein um, to, you know, keep us from it's kind of the dark side of that industry. You know, people who have their own farms, who raise their own chickens, um, that kind of thing. Oh, you mean like me? Like you. <laughs> chickens. <laughs> well, the thing that really that really just uh, pushed me over the edge uh, about those movies was discovering that the um, the fishing industry uh, around the world is using the high tech methods that we're using for, you know, electric cars and going to space. Right. They're using those methods for catching fish. And the very unfortunate part about it is that when their materials wear out, they throw them overboard. <laughs> it's sort of like in the days in the United States, 50 years ago, when people would drive along the highway and throw garbage out the window. Uh, we weren't taught yet not right. to do that. And so highways were littered with garbage all over the country. It was really disgusting. And then we figured it out and stopped. Well, the fisher people, the industrial fishermen are dropping their equipment over the side of the boats when it wears out, because it turns out it's cheaper to throw it away and buy new than to fix it. What I learned in the movies is this material disintegrates into little tiny granules of plastic, which the tiny fish at the bottom of the ocean eat. And then as that the fish above them eat them and the fish above them in, eat them, and it goes up the food chain. And now fish all over the world have little granules of plastic inside them, which we then eat. 
That is the difficulty. And it's not like one area of the world. It's the entire world is now eating plastic when we eat fish. It's very dangerous. Furthermore, they're taking fish out of the ocean faster than the fish can reproduce. So we're virtually destroying the animal habitat in the ocean. It's really something. Not to mention scientists have finally decided, as if it was their choice to make, but have finally decided that fish are sentient beings. So there's also that. <laughs> All animals are sentient beings. Of course they are. Of course they are. There was just a crazy headline recently that said fish officially are seen as sentient beings. <laughs> I got on the cover of a science magazine and I was like, oh, what? Of course they are. <laughs> yeah, officially. We finally got to, around to realizing that everything that's living is living. Of course. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll see on the cover of this magazine, we are all one. <laughs> one day. Right. Yeah. Time magazine. Exactly. Do you recall the first time you took a psychedelic medicine with a family member? I do. Please tell us about it. I do. Um, it was with you and um, the woman who is now your wife whom I absolutely adore. We have a, a wonderful, beautiful relationship. Um, uh, it was the three of us. And uh, I believe that we took MDMA together um, and had a lovely outdoor experience um, in the Bay Area and uh, a beautiful conversation. Can you, can you remember anything about the effect of this MDMA upon you or upon what you perceive as us, you know, what it affected seemed to have us or what effect it had on the nature of the conversation. Yeah, I, I think if I may, I would like to talk about that in aggregate of a lot of our experiences are, as we have so aptly nicknamed them, fam journeys, family journeys um, together. You know, I think that um, I really credit, you know, our psychedelic work together with deepening our relationship, our connection, our understanding of each other. I think it's helped me understand you much more deeply. I can't speak for you and you understanding me, but it's helped me understand you much more deeply. It's helped me understand how to um, formulate questions uh, properly when really trying to go deeper with you um, and have open conversations. I think there was certainly a period of time, you know, in our relationship where I was trepidatious to be my whole self with you. And I was still, I mean, and frankly with myself as well, not just with you, with everybody. Um, and it really helped me approach that and open those pathways to really begin to actually stand in myself and speak, um, as myself. And that, that, directly correlates with connecting to you and, and, you know, and to, of course, everybody like in the sphere, but as it pertains to our experiences with these medicines, I mean, I think that's just a very, very big aspect of it and big heart space opener, obviously. <laughs> and that began in your mid, that first time was in your mid twenties. Mm -hmm. Did that, does that seem like a reasonable age for us to have begun as a family using psychedelics so that you've had enough of a foundation as a person on which to sit? I think so. You know, I, I actually have spent a lot of time. I don't have children yet. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how I will have conversations about psychedelic medicines with my kids. And also I have spent in my program um, right now, my school program, spent a lot of time studying uh, childhood, adolescent and adult brains 
and um, brain development. And so I think mid-20s makes sense um, as it pertains to sense of self within a human, allowing somebody to like really come into their own, but also understanding what's happening within the actual physiology of a brain and, and the brain's still developing, you know, into the mid-20s. What about friends of yours? Do you have friends who have also uh, had psychedelic experiences with their families, or is this a rather rare occurrence? What can you share with us about that? Um, I can share that it is a rare occurrence. And yes, I do have friends who have done this with their families. So yeah, so I mean, I think those of us who have um, experienced, had psychedelic experiences with our families, we are the exception to the rule. Um, But I do have friends who have. I also have a couple of dear friends who have asked me to um, guide their parents um, in psychedelic experiences as well, um, which I've been incredibly honored to do so. It's a you know guided meditation um, ceremony with psychedelics. Quite an um, honor. Yeah, quite an honor. I mean, it's a yeah. I actually have one coming up in about ten days, uh, and it's a, it's a very different you know experience, and I feel so honored to be trusted um, you know by my closest people to do that. And um, but you know it it is an outlier. It's uh, it's rare, and you know part of my belief and and deeper than a belief, but what I know to be true, I mean, as proven by, you know, your second book, Psychedelic Wisdom, is that this is a topic that transcends generations. This medicine is not just for people who were around in the free love era or people who are, you know, waking up now. Um, It's not just millennials and it's not just boomers. It's not Gen Z's. It's not Gen X. It's, it's all of us. Um, and there's something for everybody here. And so I think that's why psychedelic families and normalizing the conversation around psychedelic families is important. Would you recommend this experience to families? And if so, under what circumstances would you recommend the experience? Yeah, I would absolutely recommend it. I would say, of course, you know, our family is very unique um, because it's a family business, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I would always recommend having a guide of some sort, whether it be a licensed therapist or professional or, you know, someone more in my line of work who is, you know, certified in meditation facilitation and guide work that way. You know, having somebody in the room who, again, has a relationship with the medicine, who has experience, I think is really, really important, um, who can um, hold the space. You know, being a space holder is, um, for me, it's an honor. I think, you know, it's it's just such a joy to be able to give that to people. And also it creates a level of safety so people don't have to be concerned about it. Like I said earlier, there's been a lot of fear imparted upon people unnecessarily around these medicines. And so somebody who doesn't hold that fear and can't hold the space, I think is a very crucial component of a ceremony or a journey. So it's not the kind of thing you'd recommend a family just go out and get a hold of the medicine and, uh, and, and, and embark. They, you you want to have someone involved who has experience who can guide you through it. Yes. Yes. That's what, that's my belief. I think it's very important. Do you have questions yourself for me? Because I've been asking all the questions so far. (laughs) And since this is a a family uh, Mm -hmm. visit, uh, I I invite and welcome any questions you'd like to ask. I I, I probably should have said that right away, but I didn't. All good. (laughs) 
<laughs> We're rolling with it. Um, well, thank you for that. I would say, you know, first of all, you know, one thing that I have always appreciated about your personal philosophy is that no topic of conversation is off limits. So knowing that I'm still going to ask this question, um, you know, being the father of a, of, and I, I also do want to mention that we're only just a small part of a psychedelic family. Um, you know, uh, I have an older sister, um, my, my sister, and, um, you know, she has a longer standing relationship with you as she's older and, um, you know, and your wife. And then of course my sister and I each have our own mothers who I'm sure have their own experiences. And so we're just a piece, you know, two pieces of a much bigger puzzle of people with lots of experience and perspectives on this. But so this question for you specifically, you know, being the father to a young daughter in the late seventies and then eighties, and then yet again, a young daughter in the late eighties and nineties, you know, did it ever occur to you that like you wouldn't be introducing this to us, that you wouldn't be talking to us about it, that it wouldn't be in our orbit or how, what was your approach? You know, again, I think about this a lot as to how I'm going to approach it with my future children. So I'm curious. I think the most important question for me, which you've really uh, answered today uh, to my uh, great satisfaction, the most important question to me was always, how can I get the message across to you of the importance of these medicines? And how can I introduce you to these medicines in the most safe and responsible way so that you come to realize that these are medicines to be used sacramentally for healing, for creativity, and for mind expansion, but not to be used as everyday drugs. Right. That was my concern, because as you were growing up, we went through various epidemics of drug abuse, or the abuse of people with drugs, as you well know, uh, in the in the uh, in the 80s, particularly, we had a national cocaine epidemic. And as you recall, I started a chemical dependence program called Cocaine's Alcohol and Drug Program. So on the one hand, I was treating people who were abusing themselves, themselves, their families, their businesses which, by the way, is my definition of addiction. Addiction is when you do something repeatedly that has adverse effects to yourself, your family, and or your business. Uh, and that's what I consider, you know, personal abuse. So the question was, how do I get it across? On the one hand, I'm treating people who are abusing people, uh, excuse me, abusing themselves with certain substances we call drugs. And at the same time, I have a very strong interest in another kind of, if you will, drugs that I'm referring to as medicine. Right. And so the question for me was, how do I communicate this to you, my daughter, uh, in a responsible and a safe way? And from what you're telling us today, I was successful, which I rejoice in. Right. But that was the big question. That was the big question. Yeah, you know, how do you make that? How do you teach that differentiation between abuse and use between drugs 
and medicine. Yeah, and I mean, it, it didn't hurt that, uh, you know, you and my mom were very focused on helping people overcome addiction of alcohol and drugs because there was a very clear delineation for me. Very, very clear. Um, and that has stuck with me. And I actually, you know, I, I used to drink um, and I just don't anymore. I don't really have any interest in it. And I really very much feel that from my own experience, I don't, again, I don't have judgment of people who, you know, like to enjoy wine or, or engage in a cocktail. But for me, alcohol really reads as a consciousness suppressant, whereas entheogenic medicine, psychedelic medicine really reads as a consciousness elevator and mind expander. Um, and if I'm going to choose one, I'm certainly going to choose the one that's helping me expand, um, rather than, you know, be suppressed. You know, the sad truth about alcohol, and I say sad truth purposefully because alcohol can be fun. Uh, alcohol is a relaxant. Alcohol takes away or the governor on inhibitions. Alcohol lets people who are inhibited be less inhibited. It, it actually can serve as a medicine. The problem is, as has been demonstrated very powerfully by an important article in Lancet, the most important uh, prominent journal, a medical journal in England, uh, they published an article in 2017, and the headline is, alcohol in any amount is toxic to the human system. That's the problem. The problem is it has negative side effects, which are toxicity. Mm -hmm. So although it does have positive, we have other medicines like that as well, right? I mean, I've also found that for me, you know, and, you know, this also has been written about as well, but I experience it in a very extreme way is that it's a, a massive inflammatory for my body massive inflammatory and uh it's just not worth it it's well, not worth me having joint pain at my age um you know it just doesn't make sense well um, you don't I want think, joint pain at any age oh right but, no at any age true but, but I, what you what you're talking about that inflammation is 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 a, is a what's called a side effect i don't right. really call them side effects i call them unwanted complications of absolutely. medicine absolutely unwanted complications yeah um, I do have another question for you. Yes. Um, so, you know, one of the things uh, that I, you know, I joke about with my friends and, uh, I think I put in an email to, you know, a family and friends recently is that when I was, you know, working my corporate life and also, you know, like living in this piece of myself, but quietly, I, I've come to joke about it now as, as being spiritually closeted, um, and, you know, I think that my um, personal work um, and, um, and ceremonies and journey work with um, entheogenic medicine has allowed me to really step into and own my spirituality. And so I am curious about what spirituality means to you through your psychedelic life, which, by the way, I think that you probably tell your listeners this regularly, but... How many decades has it been that you have been engaging with these medicines? <laughs> um, I took um, 400 uh, heavenly blue uh, morning glory seeds containing LSD, uh, which I read about in Leary and Alpert's book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, 
which everybody who's interested in this field ought to own a copy of it. I'm sure it's still available. So they recommended either Heavenly Blue or Pearly Gates Morning Glory Seeds. Uh, I went out uh, as a uh, graduate student in 1965. So that's 35, 40, it's over 35, 40, it's almost 60 years ago. And I took uh, uh, the Morning Glory Seeds and had a full uh, psychedelic experience. That was my first time. So it's been close to 60 years that I've been experimenting with these substances. Um, and, um, you know, you mentioned something earlier in the uh, in our talk that I wanted to come back to because it's important to me. And that is that I've told you that for me, with you, with me, with our family, and really for me, with everybody that I come in contact with in the world, every topic is an acceptable topic. Right. I believe that we as humans ought to be able to talk about anything and everything as long as there's mutual consent. Yeah. And the mutual consent or the consent on my part is 100% of the time, uh, whatever the topic is, because they're all topics. That's all they really are. They're topics. And what counts more so than the topic to me is how the topic is conveyed, because the topic is the lyrics. The way in which the topic is conveyed is the music. And it's the, it's the music that we feel first. The music consists of the way you look, the person talking to me, in this case you, how you look at me when you're talking, what your voice sounds like, what the expression of your face is. And in old 60s parlance, what kind of vibes you're putting out? We still talk like that now. We okay, about mm -hmm. vibes. All right. So the vibes, if you will, are the music and the words are the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And I'm 100% open to all lyrics regardless. But I don't necessarily want to be around all vibes. Yeah. Because there are some vibes that I just as soon not be around. Yeah, as we like to say in my group of friends, not those vibes. <laughs> not those vibes. Not vibes. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of a long-winded answer to your question there. Yeah. So, so yeah, so thank you. So in the 60 years, I would love to hear about how psychedelic medicine has had an impact, if it has, on your own spiritual journey and like really what spirituality means to you, because I think it's, I know certainly for me, it has helped me ground in my own uh, definition of it and my experience with it. For me, spirituality is my connection with everything. And by everything, I mean everything. I mean the planet. What I came to realize while taking these psychedelic medicines is that I don't live on the earth, I'm part of the earth. And we humans are not animals living on a big ball of dirt. We humans are part of that big ball of dirt, that we are all one big organism. We are all cells on that organism. There's no differentiation. We are part of the animal system. 
We are part of the plant system. We are part of the dirt. Because when we, when we go through what's called dying, we disintegrate and literally become part of the dirt. We go back to being b- b- what we are in, in, in very basically, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. We're just elements. And we are elements that somehow over billions of years got stuck together in such a way as to make what we call humans, to make us. But that's really what we are. And we're really not solid. We think of ourselves as solid, like we think of a table as solid or a chair or various things as solid. But they're they're really not. They're really molecules stuck together with spaces in between. And that's why they break, because you can put a knife through a piece of meat and cut it open or through your own arm because the molecules aren't connected forever. They're just connected through chemistry and physics and they can pull apart just like they're stuck together. And so getting back to the question of spirituality, what I learned through psychedelic medicine is that I'm part of everything. I am part of everything. And so are you. And so is all, so are all of us. And so Everything, therefore, is to be revered because it's all us. And so that how from that philosophy, you can see how it's easy to make a jump to politics, because if we're all connected, then to fight against another human being is like taking a hammer or a knife and cutting off a piece of your arm or your leg, because because we're all connected. It's all us. And to take oil out of the ground is like putting some kind of a cannula into our body and sucking the oil out of our body. Mm. it's, It's all, we are a microcosm of the entire planet. Right. And what we do to the planet, we're doing to ourselves. What we do to ourselves, we're doing to, uh, to the planet. So that is my sense of spirituality. My sense of spirituality is to, is to go out and look at the ocean and feel a way to embrace it. In the words of my friend, Annie Sprinkle, who calls her Dr. Annie Sprinkle, who calls herself an ecosexual uh-huh. because, because she goes out and makes love to the air. She goes out and makes love to the ground. She goes, she's way beyond being a tree hugger. She's a nature sexual person and calls herself an echo sexual. (laughs) And for me, that is, is, is a spirituality. Thank you. Thank you. I want to tell a cool story. I think I've said this to you before, but, um, I had a couple years back, it was before the pandemic I had a solo LSD trip where I discovered something very, very fascinating. And, um, I wrote about it in my, in my daily journal and I didn't really talk to anybody about it for a long time because I was just kind of sitting with it for a while. And then I came to California and I surprised you at a talk you were giving. And at this talk, I was absolutely floored to hear you talking about an LSD trip you had where you discovered almost verbatim what I had just been writing about in my notebook. And 
what that was. And you and I had never had this conversation. So it, you and I individually each had a, a solo LSD journey where we both discovered the same thing. And my version of it, and I would love to, to hear your version, is that there essentially, you know, we've all heard our whole lives that human beings only use 10% of our brains. And I really started to dig into that in this trip and like, what does that mean? And where do I have higher cognitive function that I'm not using? And it then just transcended Evacheska and my own mind and went into the human brain and cognitive function and what we can and cannot do, so to speak, can and cannot, you know, in quotes. And what I discovered in that trip was that as we evolve, we will be able to continue to unlock parts of our minds that we've not used as a species before. And one of those pieces of our minds is that of healing. And the way that I got there was through this understanding that it's through engaging and opening new neural pathways and allowing our synapses to fire differently through the use of these medicines that we are engaging with, you know, our, our emotional, our psychological healing but what's to say that we can't actually heal our physical bodies. And I then just went through this whole exploration and I was like, we will certainly get there. And of course, now, several years later, there is data, um, you know, a Forbes article came out in 2021 about um, ayahuasca and epigenetics, which is the changing of our DNA um, with the use of ayahuasca, um, which is not exactly the same thing as like what I was exploring. You know, I was thinking if you, at one point in the future of the human species, if you cut your hand open, will you be able to use your mind to heal that wound? And my belief is yes, that that exists within us. And so then to come to your talk and hear you say almost the exact same thing was a pretty wild experience for me. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that <laughs> um, and hear your, your version of it. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you quoted it exactly. And I remember the talk I gave, it was at the Sage Institute. Uh, in Berkeley, which was started by uh, my two colleagues and friends, Dr. Genesee Herzberg and Dr. Jason Butler. Right. Uh, and uh, I should put in a plug for the Sage Institute. For those of you listening, you should look into it because it, it's a psychedelic psychotherapy uh, clinic and the first of its kind in the United States to be serving indigenous people. And uh, they're, they're doing heroic work there. And uh, yes, you quoted me exactly. Uh, I pointed out that when we uh, cut the back of our hand, uh, it heals, but we don't know how we did it, but yet we did it. You can't point to somebody else and say, you did that. You can't go to the, a doctor and say, you healed my hand because they didn't. The body heals itself. Well, if the body heals itself, it's our body that heals itself. So then the question is, how did we do it? But we don't know how we did it. So what happens when we find out how we did it? And maybe these medicines, as you're pointing out, will facilitate our focusing our mind and opening up channels in our mind so that we come to understand the, the, the electromagnetic chemical methods that we used for that healing. Once we know how to do that, then we can go inside and attend to organs and various other parts of our body, arteries, veins, and repair, which will yeah. be the ultimate, what you might call ultimate epigenetics. Right. Yeah. So it was, that was a very cool experience for me. 
uh, having had a, a trip where I discovered all of that and then hearing you say the words out loud, even though we hadn't had the conversation that you also had experienced that. I also think that, you know, from my experience with these medicines and especially after being in Peru, but over the past several years, you know, you talking about our oneness um, and the molecules and the energy, you know, for me, so much of my, my personal work with these medicines has been the discovery that science and spirituality intersect and they are one and the same. And ultimately the way that I think that we get to the place that, that we were just talking about with healing is by really truly understanding that if we're accepting oneness as you know, energy and vibrations that exist everywhere. And that's what pulls us all together. Then these medicines also are part of the oneness. And if animals are also sentient beings, then trees are also sentient beings. And that there's a wisdom there that we can learn from. And part of that learning is that they help us learn within ourselves. They help us with the mind expansion that is required in order to make these discoveries. There's clear evidence that trees talk to one another. Yes. And we, we know that now, and that's not science fiction. That's right. But I, I would go one further and say that they talk to us as well. Well, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't had the experience uh, yet of a tree actually talking to me, but I, but I do love hugging them. Yes. <laughs> I'm a tree hugger from way back. <laughs> So anything else before we finish up for today that we might want to, uh, uh, anything lurking about? I always like to ask the question, if you were to leave right now and you're driving in your car and you have a thought, oh, I wish I would have said that. What is the thing either of us might have right now that we wish we would have said so we can still say it because we're not in our cars right now. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is that in my experience, you know, working with medicine and also without medicine, um, you know, with, with clients, with various groups, um, is that there is medicine in everything. And so we can take these philosophies and these understandings and these lessons that we garner through our work with psychedelic medicine and apply them to other things, which I certainly have, and has, I've created a practice around it. There is medicine in the food that we eat. There's medicine in the way that we connect with each other. There's medicine in movement, uh, incorporating movement into my practice, not just my personal practice, but as part of my work with clients has really changed uh, uh, the approach. And some people aren't ready um, or are trepidatious to engage with psychedelics, but it doesn't mean that you can't leverage a psychedelic approach in medicine and understanding that there's truly medicine in everything. And, um, that is really the foundation of everything that I do now, including, you know, what I consume, whether it be how I've changed my consumption with technology, with Instagram, you know, with media. I mean, even, you know, what I read, what I watch, what I eat, but also the thoughts that are in my head, the things that I say to other people, the things that I allow myself to be around when other people are, are speaking. Um, there's medicine in everything. We just have to see it that way and allow it to be that. And that I think is, is something that I have learned deeply from my experiences with psychedelic medicine. What you're talking about really is practicing being present. 
and practicing being aware. Yes. And there's and there's no doubt that these psychedelic medicines have expanded your consciousness, have expanded my consciousness, and have expanded our relationship to, to the magnificent relationship we have today. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Dad. <laughs> well, thank you so much, my daughter, Evacheska DeAngelis. And I'd like you to put in a plug, please, for your new website. Tell everybody uh, what it is. Yes. So um, you can check out the various offerings of... Um, of our community. It's called Temple Sotoluce. Sotoluce is Italian for beneath the light. So whether you take that as standing in the shadows or standing underneath a light, um, there are offerings at Sotoluce. So anything from um, guidance sessions over Zoom to um, in-person guidance or um, ceremonies with sound and song and meditation. We also do group events um, and are having our first retreat um, in Iceland this summer. And that will be published at www.templesotoluce. It's S-O-T-T-O-L-U-C-E.com. S-O-T-T-O-L-U-C-E.com. Templesotoluce.com, yes. Templesotoluce.com. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you.